Welcome to another episode of Life of Brian, dot, 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 Manix, that is, the podcast brought to you very, uh, very proudly, oh, enormously proudly, proudly by Mercot's Driving Excellence, that's 1300 555 576, mercots.edu.au. The star of the show, of course, is Brian Mannix. Hello, Brian. Good morning, Kevin, and good morning to our have lovely listeners. Have you been and doing lots of rock star things or not? I have. Listen to my voice. It sounds quite deep <laughs> this morning. Um, yeah, I've been back at work, which has been good. Wow. I did two gigs in a row, and I was exhausted after so much <laughs> doing nothing. But, um, yeah, I went to Adelaide on uh, Friday, and that was fantastic. And then uh, last night played at the Do to Stars Footy Club, yeah, so, you know, starting to fill up the coffers again, which is fantastic, and, um, yeah, enjoying life. It's nice for uh, Melburnians and Victorians to be the kind of centre of attraction as opposed to the centre of uh, ridicule and scorn, which we've been for sort of 18 months. Well, look, you know, they're not going well in New South Wales, and no. um, you might remember that I told you I asked Gladys out for a date, remember? I do. <laughs> I sent her a message, Gladys Bajiklian, and I said, you know, we should go out for dinner or drinks mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Well, during the week, I got a, uh, a, a signed photo from uh, Gladys. She oh, said I thought that, you might have got a, a cease and desist order from the police or something. Well, that's <laughs> from the lawyers, but Gladys, <laughs> Gladys sent me a, a signed photo and it said, um, thank you, Brian, for your lovely message. Um, thinking of you, let's catch up soon. Love, Gladys. Yeah, right. Which was beaut. Yeah. And, a, and a couple of little kisses and a hug there. The thing was, though, Kev, she sent me a picture of Klinger from MASH. I'm not sure what that was about. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I've seen that. That's a very funny uh, name or whatever it's called on uh, on social media. There there are similarities there, I'm afraid. Well, you know, I've never thought of uh, Klinger from MASH in a sexy kind of way before, but... Now I'm starting to think he goes all right. He's not too bad. When he puts that dress on, he looks good. (laughs) Um, Our guests on this program, uh, first up we're going to talk to Russell Can I introduce the guests? Yeah, go on. Okay, we've got uh, Reverend Bernard uh, Curry coming on the show to right. talk about uh, the, the uh, new amendments to the New Testament. Right. And we've also got uh, Professor Willoughby Harris on who's uh, oh, invented... Will. He's coming on and he's invented a new type of Band-Aid, which I think will very be very interesting to our listeners. Right. Terrific. I'm an idiot, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> it should have been called I'm an Idiot, Aren't I, this program, not Life of Brian. Yeah. yeah. Russell, R- Russell Morris, as, as fascinating as Willoughby Harris would be, Russell <laughs> Morris, I reckon, is going to be more fascinating. He's had, uh, he's had just the best career. Um, he has. And reinvented himself a couple of times because, the, you know, he just loves music, obviously. So we'll have a chat to him at uh, uh, living these days on the, uh, the beautiful Gold Coast in Queensland. Mm, and I'm then we're going to go international again, Mr Mannix. Oh, we love this. And you love a keyboard. I do love a keyboard. You I love, love this a guy's... Wurlitzer. <laughs> I, love, I love a Wurlitzer, yeah, that's, um, that's beautiful. Um, but no, this guy's... I was really rapt that we got him on the show. He's um, 
he is terrific. I, if I like, if you go for keyboards, he's probably the the man I, whose keyboards I like the most. And if you talk to people about uh, iconic songs of the eighties, he's got a couple of them that just stick out like you know what, uh, like my my appendage. Like your nose. Um, right. Thank and that, you. of course, is Cars and the Tube Wyami song, Our Friends Electric. He had a couple of the biggest radio songs uh, and countdown songs, I guess, of, of that era. His name, of course, is Gary Newman. And he created his own style of music. I suppose it was a little bit uh, craft work or Germany, but um, he sort of brought that to the mainstream. He didn't sound like anybody else, so that's what was great about him. And he still doesn't, and we're going to play a track off his new album, which is called Intruder. Gary Newman's going to join us and have a chat about uh, his life and what he's up to and does all sorts of things, including fr- flying. Um, but we're also going to talk, obviously, to uh, to Russell Morris. And uh, I wanted to bring up an anniversary. So uh, oh. while, while everyone has to listen to uh, the Russell Morris interview, mm-hmm. um, and then we're going to play a track off uh, one of his great uh, albums, uh, Red Dirt. Red Heart, uh, that's coming up. I want you to have a think about the 20th anniversary of the Chopper movie, which they're celebrating at the moment with a re-release in cinemas of the film. Oh, and, great. And you were in it. I, I made that film, uh, Kevin. Um, well, we're, we're going to come back to that. A after. lot of people have said oh, Eric Banner has gone on to do some great work, <laughs> but his best work was with me. Who am I to deny that? Good point. Very yeah, good point. No, no, look, you know, if I'd been in Troy, I think that would have been a far better movie. I could have perhaps done Brad Pitt's brother or something, but uh, anyway, that's, right, you know, that's... life doesn't always work out the way we'll, you we'll want pursue, it to. We'll pursue that uh, topic uh, after everyone listens to us uh, giving Russell Morris a bit of a call. Can you tell I just got out of bed? Hello. Brian. Russell, it's Kevin Hilly and Brian Mannix, mate, and you've got Brian on the line now. Hi, Russell. Hi, mate. How are you? Good, mate. How are you? Hang on a sec. I'll have to stop my dog barking. Give us a sec. <laughs> I'm back. Sorry, mate. That's right. Oh, good. I'll try- bark all the way through. Uh, that's good. I'll try and put a muzzle on Brian during the interview as well, Russell, for us. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we've done some work together. We, I, I tried to find a muzzle that would fit. <laughs> I think that's... I think that's why they make people in Victoria wear those masks now. (laughs) (laughs) They want me to wear one all the time. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, now on that, on that, when you worked together, Brian told a story about the fact that when you used to do a stage, when you're on stage together, at one stage you were doing a a Rage Against the Machine song, which caused a few problems. Is that right? And my jokes. You're kidding me. I can't even remember. I remember working with Brian. I can't remember what songs we did. No idea. It was just a haze those days, and Brian was like, he was like that, uh, you know that creature in those that TV cartoon, the one that comes in and goes, the Tasmanian Devil. <laughs> he was like that on stage. You never knew what he was going to say. You never knew what he was going to do, and uh, it was uh, it was fun. Actually, I really enjoyed it. It was one one of the uh, most enjoyable experiences I've had. <laughs> you remember when we played cricket? Oh, the, oh, you and you, with well, the, all the rich ladies from Turak, and you were on the microphone <laughs> saying the most disgusting things. I thought, oh, no, we're going to be traumatic here. <laughs> finished all the old ladies with diamonds all around him and saying, oh, we love you, Brian, you're so funny. And I was, <laughs> <laughs> but you went out and batted without a box. Yeah, and some smart-ass uh, Victorian cricketer bowled it down at me at like breakneck speed. It went between my bat and legs and over the wicket. 
I was so lucky. And uh, one of the guys, I can't remember who it was, turned to him and said, hey, hey, back off. <laughs> He's never played cricket before. Give him, you know, stop being, a, stop being an asshole. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was a bit scary. It was, it was a funny day because we were there to raise money for um, underprivileged kids to learn to play cricket, and that was the cause. And I think the day cost probably 30000 to put on, and I reckon they raised about 500 bucks. And Alan Stockdale, who was the reigning premier at the time, he flew into the match on a helicopter. Oh, God. So there's all the galas, is all gold-edged, and that was a very um, highfalutin day. It was, yeah, with, with John Elliott. He was yeah. here with one of the one of the teams. There was a couple of Victorian cricketers who were really good players. It was a bit scary watching them. That would be like, I, I wouldn't mind them bowling a tennis ball at me, but that thing was hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, very good. All right. Hey, uh, uh, Russell, now you, you've relocated. You're living in, uh, is it sort of, are you at Hope Island where Mark Opitz is? Yeah, I'm close. I'm sort of uh, near Hope Island, yeah. Uh, I love it. It's good fun. Yeah. And I yeah. still love Victoria. I miss Victoria. I miss all my friends and my kids. Um, but I come down as often as I, I could. And then all of a sudden COVID hit and then it became less and less. Hey, uh, Russ, yeah. uh, the, uh, the kind of the resurgence of your career of recent years with the, the blues albums, which started with sort of Shark Mouth. Geez, you must be having fun doing that stuff. Yeah, I'm really enjoying uh, I, I really enjoyed that. That was great. I I didn't think it was going to be successful because everyone told me you're not going to be successful with a blues album and a song about history. Yeah. And I said, listen, I really don't care. I just want to do it. That's what I, when I started in the first band that we started and was a blues rhythm and blues, Tamla Motown type band. And I wanted to go back to what I started with before Molly came along and Molly said, oh no, you guys aren't commercial enough. <laughs> we have to become more commercial. And that that's, and then I, we had a few hits, and I thought, well, Molly knows what he's talking about. That's, that's the road I'll dance on for a while. And then that road ran out, and I was dancing on bare rocks. And uh, <laughs> I'd had no no success airplay-wise. I'd done about four albums, and they all bombed without a trace. And I thought, well, I'll do another album just for fun, you know, yeah. not expecting it to be a success, like radio-wise and chart-wise. Yeah, radio certainly it. ignored it, didn't it? I mean, you, you can't get a radio station probably even now still to play the thing in terms of a commercial no, station. No, they didn't. And uh, the, the I, I can't say that for the ABC. The ABC stuck by it and um, community radio. Yeah. And they, they, pushed it, they pushed it over the line, which was really good. But still, commercial radio never, never played it. And considering it was a top ten album, so was... Um, Van Diemen's Land, both top ten, like national top ten, not in the Blues top ten or the Australian top ten, but yeah. national against Lady Gaga and things like that. But they still never played it. It was good that, um, that your albums did well, though, because it wasn't only good for you. I think it was good for all all musicians, you know, that um, are in our sort of vintage, because it showed that you know we still got something to offer. So that was a really good thing for not only you but for every musician, I reckon. So well done. Yeah, well, I, I think. It's like say we were working for AMP, for instance, and we'd worked our way up and we're pretty confident in the office. And all of a sudden they say, mate, we're going to make you redundant. And they move you on. You think, hang on, I've got a hell of a lot of experience here. And I think I'm sort of better than I was. But people sort of look at you as, particularly in the music business, 
you know, once you get past a certain vintage, you are redundant and you don't have anything new to offer. So, yeah, I, I think, because uh, I've heard a lot of great albums from our peers and they still don't get any, see the light of day. That's just not fair. No, I'd rather be hearing, you know, something like James Rain's new album than, you know, always playing, you know... Uh, Boys Light Up. Boys Light Up. And yeah. you're going to play Midnight Oil. Yeah. Play something like their new album. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that'd be great. Uh, Radio doesn't do that because they, they try to be safe. They need to have that um, signature of recognition. They don't want to lose one listener for anything. So they try to keep them there by playing repetition and things that I feel comfortable, I guess. <laughs> you, yeah. You've absolutely nailed it, Russell. I'm telling you, that's exactly what they do. Hey, what, yeah. I've, what I've always found fascinating, and, re- and particularly in recent times, is I've seen it with Brian and Tim Henwood recently with the stuff that he's been doing with them, and you've been doing it with uh, with Ray from uh, from Thirsty Merc. The the reverence that you two have and, and, and blokes of your era have with the, with the musos who are coming up, the musos who are sort of uh, making their way in... in that that credibility and that uh, sort of I guess it's not fanboy stuff, but it's uh, there's a reverence about what you've achieved that they understand that I don't think radio and stuff gets. Yeah, no, radio and that don't get. I, I, I and myself and Brian had the same reverence for the people that came before us. Yeah, um, like for instance, the Easy Beats and all those sort of guys. Like I hold them in such awe as as gods, you know. And a, a lot of those early bands, you know. The loved ones and all that sort yeah. of stuff is like, yeah. for me, is reverence. Uh, a lot of younger acts do that. The, I tell you what, it is a bit scary playing with uh, Ray Thistlewaite, though, because he's, he's world-class as a jazz musician. And I was terrified playing guitar, and I thought, this is going to be so embarrassing for me, you know. But he is such a wonderful, supportive guy. He's Ray Thistlewaite to play with the best jazz players around, but you could say to him tomorrow night, Ray... I've got this idea. I hope you don't mind. I want to play in the middle of the set the theme from the Mickey Mouse Club, you know, M-I-C-K-Y-M, or you see Mickey Mouse. And he would go, yeah, yeah, that'll be fun. Let's give it a try. Uh, he doesn't carry that musical snobbery yeah. that a lot of those really incredibly good players carry. Well, if you're not playing jazz, you're obviously a load of rubbish, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. And he's such a great pleasure to work with him and, him and Jack Jones are both phenomenal players. That's the Capretos. Yeah, the Capretos. Yeah, I, I saw some stuff. Yeah. I, I was looking at some stuff online. It's a, and you all four of you stay on stage for the whole show. That's that in itself is interesting. Yeah, well, we wanted to form a band. That's why we got Ray, who plays piano, and Jack, who's a phenomenal guitar player. Yeah. And I, I do the second fiddle on guitar. So I'm like Daryl Braithwaite, sort of singer as well. So it was a band. We just didn't want to form a a show where one comes out and then the other one goes back and then the other one comes out and then he goes back and then the other person comes out. We wanted to do it as a back, like the Travelling Wilburys, I yeah. guess. That sort yeah. of you, you better tell us about recording with Molly um, Russell. I think people probably would like to know about that. We never knew that he could produce a record. Like he said, uh, we met him, we were working in Anglesey, we were sort of filling in one set in between the group, the GR00P band, because yeah. they didn't want to play five sets. So we'd stick a set in and so we were doing it for free. And Molly, who was with them as like a sort of glorified roadie, <laughs> um, didn't realise that the place 
I, that's where I spent all my youth surfing down at Torquay and Anglesey. And when we went on stage, virtually everyone in the room knew me. And when we finished, the crowd went nuts. And Molly thought, gee, these guys must be good. So he said, let me produce your records and get you a record deal and manager. And we said, oh, of course, you know, as you do. And we go, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And it turned out that he probably was one of the best record producers this country's ever had. Uh, albeit the problem was is he didn't know what he wanted until he heard it. So it was very hard for him to direct musicians to play something because he didn't know what he wanted them to play. And so consequently we're in the studio for ages, everyone falling asleep and the guitar player doing bits and all of a sudden Molly going, that's it, that's exactly it. <laughs> and he had an instinctive, instinctive thing that as soon as he heard something, he knew it was right. And he was, in most cases, 100% right. It was hard working with him because he took a long time to do things. Uh, particularly mixes, but he, because he couldn't say to a guitar player, I want you to play an arpeggio there, and I want you to do this, and, all, and they, so he'd go in and say, play, and they'd play something, he'd say, no, 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 play something else, and Lee got it, and Lee got what he wanted, but it took a while, but boy, his instincts, if you still listen to Hush, which I did, and the real thing, the bass yep. on those records are unbelievable, he got such fantastic bass and drum sounds, particularly on the real thing. They, yeah. He really excelled himself, of course, with the help of the wonderful John Sayers, who was an amazing engineer. But Molly really was a bit of an architect. So, wow. so that's somebody's image when that started with Molly, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Okay, so you had Hush, you had Hide and Seek, which I really liked. I thought Hide and Seek was a great little song. And you had, a, was a Heat Wave the other song that you did with somebody's Heat, image? Heat Wave, yeah, a Martha and Bandola's song. Yeah. Because that's where we started. We started playing Tamla Motown and blues and rhythm and blues, and that was one of the songs that we loved. And the other one we did was When I Come Home, which was a Spencer Douglas type, that song, yeah. So that was our roots. And then Molly said, no, we have to get commercial. And that's when the real thing happened. Yeah, well, what happened with the real thing, Ian had uh, found a couple of songwriters like Hans Polson and all that, and they'd written me some songs, and we went in and recorded them. They were nice songs. But I said one day when I was driving home, we, I was driving him home, we are going over Punt Road, and I said, Ian, they're good songs. He said, yeah, they're great, they're great. And I said, yeah, Ian, they're not different. He said, what do you mean? I said, listen, there's, there's, uh, Ronnie Burns could record those songs Normie Rowe could record them Johnny Farnham could record them And they'd all fall in their repertoire We've got to find something That is not their genre And to Ian's credit He looked at me and said You know, you're 100% right We need to find something different And we were looking for songs And Johnny Young one day Played some songs at Channel 10 And we Sort of liked them. Girl of I Love was one of them. And I said, yeah, they're pretty good, but looking for something different. And he said, oh, I don't have anything. I said, oh, I have this song that I wrote as sort of as a joke. He said, it's only a band, so it wouldn't, wouldn't suit a solo artist. And he played it, and we all looked at each other and said, that's the song we want to do. And Youngie said, you're nuts. That's not a solo artist song. And he said, yeah, it is, because it's different, and that's what we want to do. Yeah. It was the song vastly different to how it came out. Um, without Johnny wanting to kill me, um, <laughs> I've, I've got my guitar here, actually. Yeah. Can you hear this? Yeah. Can you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. So, 
pictures of Mexican come and see a funny kind of yellow. Wow, 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 and uh, he, uh, Johnny said, well, you've got to do it the way it's got to be done, like a rock song. And Ian said, you're banned from the studio. <laughs> you can't come. Because Ian saw it and thought, right, we can change this and make it like hurdy-gurdy man meets I am the walrus. And that's, that was his, his idea totally. And he was the total architect of that. I virtually put in nothing for the song except for the bloody vocal. Ian thought of all the ideas and he was magnificent. Yeah, it's still a, a fantastic record today, and it's yeah. I was interested that he said "I am the Walrus" because it sort of goes down the Beatles psychedelic street a bit, doesn't it? It's, yeah, it um, does. Yeah, yeah, and I, that's what I love about it so much that it, you know, that it's got the Hitler speech in at the end and the little sound effects and stuff to listen to. Yeah, it's a classic. Imagine, imagine doing that today. Oh, that would be totally politically incorrect. We didn't even think about that. We just thought, well, they were good sounds to put in there. And the thing was is that it was about ego and people's egos, how it destroys the world and destroys people. But today I don't think you'd get away with it. People would say, oh, that's, that's anti-Semitism, which, is, which it wasn't, you know, because all yeah. like uh, Michael Barnett was uh, my, my manager along with Molly, who's Jewish, you know, and is one of my great friends, like Jeff Joseph. So and it ha- they didn't see anything in it either, you know. But yeah. now... People look at everything as being politically incorrect. If I yeah. pick my nose in public, it's politically incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I do a poo in the middle of the street, apparently there's a problem with that. <laughs> yes, but you are politically incorrect. You were born politically incorrect. <laughs> hey, Russell, is it well, right that it's, it's Brian Cad reading some, reading like a, a cereal box or something? He's reading the back of a TAC tape box, oh, the warranty. Because wow. he, Ian said, I want something funny. And he looked at Brian, he said, you're funny. Go and do something funny. And Brian said, I've done. What am I going to do? I can't do anything funny. And Ian picked up the tape box and gave it to him and said, go and read that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how that happened. Was he having a few drinks at the time? Uh, probably. Yeah, he was uh, He was a, he's a classic. Uh, and Ian's ideas were phenomenal. Like, I remember when we did the record and the guys got to the end and they just started jamming and Richard Wright, the drummer, went into double time. and. John Sayer went to push the talkback button to tell them to stop. And then said, no, let them play. It'll be fun. We'll fade it. And they played and played until Richard threw his drumsticks down. And uh, he didn't even sort of finish the song. He and just threw the sticks on the drums. And Ian said, don't worry, we'll fade it. And then the next day, Ian rang and said, listen, I've got a great idea. I'm going to make the record six and a half minutes long. And I said, you're crazy. No one will play it. Well, they've got like an EP with a little mark in the middle so they know where, where the song finishes. I said, but what are you going to put in the last three minutes? It's just a jam. He said, we'll put sound effects. And I said, Dan, okay, let's give it a go, you know. Yeah. And sure enough, he manufactured the whole thing. It was great. Yeah, really good. And EMI didn't want to release it, did they? They hated it. They thought it was the biggest piece of rubbish that had ever been produced. And strangely enough, ironic history repeats itself. Sharp mouth. No one wanted that either. Yeah. So it just, just goes to show how much record companies know. People who produce things sometimes can be put on the shelf 
and never see the light of day. And that, that could have been something really special. That's because the people making decisions in record companies tend to be Pied Piper followers. They tend yeah. to see the Pied Piper dancing. They say, we want another Pied Piper. Let's find a Pied Piper like him because all the kids are following. Let's get another Pied Piper. And they're going in, in, in the direction. That, that ship has already left the wharf. They've got to try and find something that is really different. And in the 60s, people did look for different. Now, most song, songs, if you hear them on radio, they're produced with exactly the same sounds. They've, they've got uh, auto-tune on them, particularly American songs. And they just have all these things that just aren't quite, they're just smooth. And all, all the little bumps have been filed off. Yeah. Yeah, and it's the bumps what makes things interesting. Um, and cross, I think it's the Rolling Stones, cross factor. They were, yeah. Was it a they were so vibrant. They were great. They still are. Not being an old fart because young people love the Stones and they love ACTC because there's warts are all in there. Yeah, exactly. And I think with record companies, it becomes sort of art made by committee. When you get a committee, like, you know, try and name one good book written by eight people. <laughs> That's the Bible. But, That's um, right. But, you know, generally somebody's got a vision and... And everybody supports that vision, but if you've got a situation where everybody's being a committee, it just doesn't work, I don't reckon. And no. I think that's the problem with record companies. Yeah, it doesn't. We've found that up recently. We've been doing stuff. And uh, the the thing is, is everyone wants to put uh, uh, their part in, you know, and it, it becomes a bit of a worry sometimes. It's like, hang on, we, yeah. need, a, we need a dictator here. Someone, yeah. someone who's just going to say, no, 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 now we're going to do it like this, you know. Yeah, a democratic dictatorship is kind of what yeah. you want. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're recording at the moment? Uh, yeah, we're doing stuff. I've just done an album which comes out in October. What's that called? Um, uh, I don't know. If I, I can't talk about it at the moment. It's with someone else from overseas. Oh. Ooh. Yeah, it's something that the record company might jump on me and bash my head in. Okay. <laughs> we're also doing another album with the Capretos. So that's with uh, Jack Jones, Ray, and Daryl Braithwaite. We're putting stuff together. We've already done two songs. We're starting Good. to put the other stuff together, but uh, that will come out after my album in October. Hey, Russell, what, well, sort of, what sort of stuff are the Capretos doing? Are you doing original stuff? Yeah, well, original stuff, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're writing together, like you and Jack and Ray and, and everyone writing? Well, Jack and I have written the first two songs. Uh, we're trying to get Daryl to uh, put pen to paper. And Ray is, uh, I, I drove back with Ray from Margaret Rivers the other day and he played me a lot of his demos and things and there were two songs on there and I said, listen, Ray, they're fantastic. We're going to take those. And so he's got two. He'll probably write some more. So we'll all all write and contribute. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know Daryl. Does Daryl does write, does he? Yeah, Daryl wrote uh, One Summer. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. He's just one of those guys. He's a laconic guy. Like he'd prefer to go surfing and yeah. go down the and write a song. And so we, I have to, and John Starr, we have to bully him and say, "Daryl, for God's sake, come up with some chords. You know, just write some chords, and we'll, you know, we'll mash it, mash it around, and then we'll work it out." Oh, that's good. That's great. That's great news. Will you do a version of Daydream Believer? I saw you do a version of that with Jimmy and Jane Barnes. That's funny. I hadn't thought of it. It might be an interesting thing to do. Yeah, good song. That was that was a fun day. We had a mighty day with them. That was 
there was about they had such beautiful hosts. Jimmy and Jane are, are just really lovely people, mighty people to spend time with. It's just so relaxed and such a family atmosphere there. All the all their grandkids are there and their kids are there. It's just mighty. Yeah. Yep. Oh, good on I could hide Australian history that you've kind of laid out in those three albums that we talked about, the blues albums that you've talked about, how, how important was it for you to get those stories out there? Mainly the first album was very important because I grew up in Richmond and Richmond, where I was, down in Burnley Street, our house was like a lot of factories were around there and lanes and my stepfather and my mother and my grandmother on Saturdays would walk up the street and they'd go down the lane and he was a guy up the lane with his bag with his taking bets from all the locals and the guy on the corner watching for the cops and if the cops came he would whistle this guy would just pack the bag and run to the end of the lane into a into a gate, through the house, out the front door, across the street, into another house. <laughs> and it was those sort of things and I grew up with that sort of stuff. When I saw the photo of Thomas Archer from 1916, I thought, wow, the streets then would have been really... And I've always been intrigued by back streets and gangsters and things because in Richmond I grew up with a lot of the people who featured in things such as Underbelly and all those sort yeah. of crime things. And some of the guys I went to school with and you were like um, Laurie Prendergast who committed the great bookie robbery, uh, the Levi- uh, Nicky Levitas who was indicted for a diamond heist and went to Europe. Um, a whole lot of people, the Canes, I knew the Canes and all that sort of So I knew all those guys and I thought, well, I have a feeling for this sort of stuff. So I wanted to write that album. And once I'd gotten nearly through it, I thought, gee, there's a whole lot of things I want to write about on other subjects about Australia, like my father in World War Two and... Um, I want to write about the Lockhart Gorge, which, I, which I'd always seen as a, when I'd go down surfing and we'd drive along the coast. If there were no waves at Angleton, we'd go further on, you know, and sometimes we went as far as Warnable and we'd see the Lockhart Gorge and I knew the history of that. So there was a lot of things I wanted to write about. So I thought, gee, I, I might make this a double album. And then I thought, well, gee, there's the Indigenous people I want to write about as well, like... Hemaway and um, Benelong yeah. and the Kadokka Man. So I thought, I better do a third one. 
once I'd done the third one, I thought, that's it. If I do another one, people are going to go, I'm, I'm becoming a serial bloody uh, Aussie and uh, doing albums and saying, you know, you've got to be patriotic to listen to my album. So I thought, no, that's it. Won't do any more. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you say that you knew um, Pendergrass and McCain's and all of that, those, um, you know, you know, gangsters or whatever they are. So if your music career hadn't taken off, you had something to fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think they would have been recruited me. I, I was. I wasn't as tough. Those guys were really scarily tough. You know, like yeah, really scary guys, and you didn't really want to cross them. You said talking about your new album that's coming out in October. Oh, you can't talk about that one, can you? No. I yeah, I because I, 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 I haven't spoken to um, the record company yet, and I don't. Okay. I don't want me to talk about it and who it's with. So right. it's, it's a bit different. It's just going to be a very different album, yeah. Okay, so no more Australian history in this one? No, no. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I can't it's, wait to find out who this other person is. It's not, it's not Linda Ronstadt, is it, who you once had a meeting with? Oh, don't talk. That was one of the biggest mistakes of my life. What happened? I did a session in Los Angeles one of, on my album, and Albert Lee is a friend of mine, the world-renowned guitar player. Yeah. He said, who would you like to play on the album? And I said, well, I don't know any players over here. I don't, I don't really, I'm not one of those guys that pick up an album and read all the names and know who's played on everyone's album. I said, I just, I'm mainly a song guy. And they said, well, have you heard any songs that you really like? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. I heard this song. And this guy playing slide guitar on it, a song called Dixie Chicken. And he said, oh, yeah, Lowell, we'll get Lowell George down to come down. So Lowell George came down and played some stuff on one song. But he brought his girlfriend. And she was really sweet, and I really liked her, and we got along really well. And she sang some things with me, and I said, wow, you're, you've got a beautiful voice. And she said, I like your voice as well. And we sort of, our voices really matched. And I said, what are you session singing? And she said, oh, I don't know what I'm doing at the moment because I was in a band, and we broke up, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And uh, I said, oh, what was the band? She said, oh, you wouldn't know them. But we only had one hit. And I said, uh, you know, in Australia we hear a lot of stuff. Said, oh, you wouldn't know. She's a, a band called The Stones. I went, Distant Drums. I love that song. She said, really? So we thought, and I should have said to her, listen, I'm new in Los Angeles. I don't know a lot of people. Is there any chance that you can introduce me? But I was too shy, stupidly, because I would have met, like, the Eagles, like Neil Young, yeah. um, yeah. um, Jody, Joni Mitchell, all those people, and that was that was one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Because she was oh. such a person, she would have said, "Sure, come and join us on on Saturday." Like just, and because she was with Lowell, I didn't want him to think that I was trying to pick her up. But you were. <laughs> no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. <laughs> now, see if you'd have been Brian Mannix in that situation. Hi, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, Mr. Smooth Tongue. <laughs> <laughs> and I say that in the most possible way. That might be the name of my new album, Mr. Smooth Tongue. We look forward to the uh, to the album in October with the mystery uh, guest appearance from whoever the mystery person is. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I don't know, that's very different. We'll see if uh, how people take to it. Okay. But it's, uh, it's one of my favourites that I've done here. 
Is it a bluesy it thing or not? Can you say that, that much or not? Uh, close. Okay. Sort of close to it, really. Okay. Okay. Not on my behalf anyway. Okay. Right. Thank Beautiful. You, we, uh, we look forward to it. Hey, Russell, thanks so much for your time, mate. We really appreciate it. Thanks for yours and uh, hope to see you both uh, soon. Colonial boy head came from Dublin, raised in a shack. On the gold fields down in Castle, Maine, where the streets are dusty tracks. Late at night, he would lay awake and dream of all that he'd give. The day I took you to run with him was the worst thing I ever did. If I'd known what I know now, if I'd known. Like the sky and his head was golden dawn He carried himself with fancy air And he was loved by all He'd play the rich just to pay the poor Across his sunburned land Irish Donna, he was his name And there was no better man If I'd known what I know now If I'd known what I know Surprise when you stabbed him in the back. You turned him in just to bring him down. A joker in the pack. Jack the nimble, Jack the quick, the lowly Judas priest. Thirty pieces of silver bid made that deal complete. If I'd known what I know now, if I'd known what I know, if I'd known. There is Russell Morris, and of course, I'm with Mr. Smooth Tongue, as he now shall be known. Uh, thanks to uh, Russell uh, reminding us that that's what several people have called him. Maybe just Russell and you thank when you're you on the road much. together. But Mr. Smooth Tongue is with me. Well, uh, before we get you, to Kevin. our next interview, Mr. Smooth Tongue, and uh, thanks once again to our terrific uh, supporters at Murcotts. Murcotts. Murcotts.edu.au. One three hundred five 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 seven six. Be a better driver, will you? Just yeah, ring them. Become a better driver and we'll all be happier people on the roads. We know you're a good driver, but you could be better. Exactly. So just, you know. You might now currently be like an eight and a half. We... You could be a nine. 
Yeah, because we've discussed before that nobody thinks they're a shit driver, but uh, so no. we can't say if you're a shit driver, go to Murcott's. Because they'll all go. Because they think they're, they're not shit. So yeah, we have to go, say. Brian's not talking to me. Oh, no, I'm not, no, I'm not a bad driver. I'm a good driver. He's talking to that guy that cut me off this morning. <laughs> yes, no, exactly. but we're not. We're actually talking to you. So yeah. get down to Murcott's and make the world a safer place. Exactly. 20 years of chop. 20 years ago, the Chopper movie came out. Wow. Now tell us about uh, you're in it. Yep. You're yep. playing a nightclub owner? Yeah, I play, uh, I, I think I've even got a name. I think my name's something like Ian Stewart or something. Um, right, eh? Not that you hear it in the in the show, I don't So think, not but, triple uh, Brownlow medalist Ian Stewart, just Ian Stewart. I don't know. I, 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 but, yeah, what a, great, what a great experience that was. And I think what was really cool was that Andrew Dominic, the director, he wrote the script as well. So he gave the actors sort of carte blanche to just ad lib and do stuff. A lot of the stuff was just sort of ad libbed and even while they were making it, everybody was saying, this is going to make or break Eric Banner. And yep. um, obviously it made him. I know Andrew Dominic's next movie after that was uh, filming the guy that killed with Brad Pitt and stuff. So, yeah, it's, a, it's really nice to be part of a really good Australian film rather than have a big part in a really shit Australian film. So... <laughs> So yeah, I'm, I'm I'm delighted to be a part of that film. I don't think I really made much of a difference to it, but it's a good film, and I happen to be in it. So thank you, Andrew Dominic. Thank you, Mushroom Pictures, and thank you, Eric Banner. Now, were you the uh, you were the owner of the nightclub or the manager of the nightclub, but down yep. on uh, in St Kilda there? Yeah, it's the uh, I think it was the Seaview Ballroom, was it? They yeah, were, I think it yeah. used to be called Hilliers. Back in the in the oh, so you owned the joint? No, did you? I didn't. Oh. Everyone used to. When I came to Melbourne and said, "Oh, is your your family owned the the, the the chocolate company?" I went, "No, no, 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 no relation." I get, "Oh, well, you must be the ones that own the the joint in St Kilda." Yeah, um, Hillier's Bonk Shop. Yeah, and I said, "No, <laughs> it was called no. Hillier's Bonk Shop." No, it wasn't. And a um, picture of you out the front. <laughs> okay. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought that would have attracted any customers whatsoever. And, you, do you remember and what, my hair from the 70s and the 80s, yeah, Manny? It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, there's a picture of you on the front and there's this long hair that goes over the back of the building. <laughs> and yeah. um, when you walked in, there was these lovely curtains that looked like a pair of lady pleasers. Oh, that you stop open. it. <laughs> stop it. Oh, goodness me. I'm uh, glad I bought that up. Uh, uh, so, well, they're 20 years of Chopper. So if you get a chance to have revisit that as a movie, uh, you might. I certainly should because it is a a, a, a really, really a good film, a really you know good my, film. Do you know my favourite part of that film is he's there and it's horrible but he's belting up his girlfriend and you can't see him hitting him but he's belting and it's just horrendous. Then the mother comes up and she goes, stop it, stop it, stop it. And then he headbutts her and the mother goes down like a bag of spuds and he goes, now look what you've done and you've upset your mother. Oh, you've God. upset. Your mother, my God! <laughs> oh. I think the most used um, expression out of that one is that that scene with I think it's him and Vince Colosimo where they talk about oh, yeah. no cash. Here, no cash. there is no cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is one of the uh, it, uh, uh, iconic film, and uh, got to say, Eric was absolutely sensational in it. Was why would I drive him to the hospital? <laughs> it defeats the whole purpose of shooting him in the first place. <laughs> uh, yes. I want to go to the pictures and watch it. I yeah, you see myself on the big screen once. Uh, oh well, I will. On, I haven't been in movies for ages. All right, well there you go. Go and have a look at Chopper. It's uh, it's, and it's I, out. I just about. like to say. Russell's song was very, very good. I really like it. Yes. 
Cut Matt. You Loose, good song. Cut good You song. Loose, all right. Yep. Keep on rocking. Yep, and he's got that new album coming out uh, with that mystery uh, special guest uh, in October, so we'll look forward to that. Do Let's you know get to our second guest, is, though. You, oh, hang on a minute. Do you know yeah. who I reckon he's doing the album with? Who? A little inside tip. Mm. One of our mates came on the show, mm. one of the shows we did with Alice Cooper. Oh, Jamie Redfern and Russell Morris. Look out for that. It's going to be huge. Yes, we did do a show with Alice Cooper and Jamie Redfern. Uh, Only us could have J- Alice Cooper and Jamie Redfern on the same show. That's and fantastic. then follow it about three weeks later with Johnny Rotten and Miss Alina. <laughs> oh, yeah. See, you're just as big an idiot as me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to our second guest, uh, Electropop at its finest, the man who bought us cars and uh, the Tube by Army. It's Gary Newman on the line from London. Hello, is that Gary? Yeah, hello, mate. Hello, Gary. Here you now. Oh, beautiful. It's Kevin Hillier and Brian Mannix calling from Melbourne, Australia. Fire away, All Brian. Right. Well, thanks for doing this, uh, Gary. I love the new album. It's um, quite a journey, but it's a pretty spooky journey. Can you tell us about where you recorded it and, and what your writing process is? is you, like, do you write a song before you go in the studio or do you write it in the studio? Tell us about the process, if you wouldn't mind. Um. Well, no, I do everything in the studio. Um, the I I started it about a year or so before the pandemic hit. Um, I was trying to think of the, the previous album had been an album that had a that had climate change as a as a theme to it, but it was actually like a like a science fiction look into the future as to what humanity would become. So it was connected to climate change, but not not fully about it. And I wanted to stay with climate change with, with a new one. So that idea was there right from the beginning. I just, I just didn't know how to do it, um, what sort of angle to take on it. And then my, my daughter wrote a poem called Earth, which was essentially the Earth talking to the other planets in the solar system and talking about how horrible people were and all the terrible things that we were doing. And it was really, it was really cute and it was really, really nicely done and I was very proud of her. But that gave me the idea. So I, I just stole the idea behind the poem, really, shamelessly. Um, and so right from the beginning, the idea of the Earth speaking, you know, was very much a part of it. And, you know, to try to express how the Earth would feel, um, you know, if it could express its feelings, of course. And I tried to find ways of, you know, connecting that with other things like religion or you know, love and whatever. But the idea that the Earth was fighting back was very much a part of it right from the very beginning, you know, that there would be some mechanism that nature could employ to to deal with what it would see as an infestation, which is you know what the album really thinks about as, as human beings are an, are an infestation on the planet. It was fascinating to be working on it when all this started to happen. But as far as working on it, to say, I mean, I, I have a studio here at home, actually in a small guest house in the garden that I converted into a studio. I do everything in there, and uh, my Ace Benson, who produces my stuff, he has a very similar uh, setup at his place in England. So I, I work on the songs here. I, I produce them up to a certain point, and then I then we just do file exchange. You know, I, I send the files to Wade. He then works on them in England. Then, then we go backwards and forwards quite a bit as, as the song develops. The process is is pretty basic, to be truthful. You know, I go into the studio with with, <laughs> with very little idea. Uh. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what I'm going to do. You know, I, I go in there and I sit down at the keyboard. And and you just start you just, you just start to work on tunes, you know, different melodies, and find what works together and what doesn't. And you just slowly start to piece it together. And then sometimes the song will come out 
you know, maybe sort of very gentle or, you know, very pretty. Other times they come out very, very aggressive and full on and very, very powerful. I, I don't really know how they're going to turn out, you know, when I, when I first sit down. It, in, in a way that the, the songs kind of stumble from one stage to the next. You know, as I get one thing, thing worked out, that kind of leads you into where it needs to go next a little bit, and then so on and so on. Right up to the lyrics, and the, the lyrics are usually the last thing that I do. And that's because I, I feel that the music should guide you. you know, the lyrics should be a reflection of the mood of the song. So you get all the music ready first, and you get it as produced as you can, so you've got a very good idea of the mood, the atmosphere that that piece of music gives you. And then work on the lyrics after that, and, and you find that it, it, it creates a picture, it creates a feeling within you, and that makes the words kind of just fall into place a little bit. It all, it doesn't write itself, that's stupid, but you know, certain phrases, certain things that you want to express, it, they just kind of fall out of you, really. So for me, it's a, it's a very, very good way of working, and it just seems to suit the, the, way, my, the way my brain works, really. That makes um, sense about leaving the lyrics to last. I know um, when they were making the Spaghetti Western, they'd have the music recorded before they'd film the scene, so the actors would hear the music and they'd go, oh, okay, so that's the mood of this scene, so, so they, it would help their acting. So I think that, um, you know, to do the, the lyrics last is a really smart way to go about it. Yeah, so how long does the whole album take? You know, it sounds like it took a couple of years to put it together. Uh, is that right? About a, year, about a year and a half, just under, I think, a year and a half. Uh, it was finished quite some time ago. You know, I actually had the, the music was all done, I think it was by July last year. Um, oh, right. And then I did, then I worked on the on the sleeves. That took a while. And quite a lot of formats for this one. So lots of artwork to do. And I do all of that at home on the laptop. So I did all that. And then you start to work on the videos for it, you know, and, and the strategies that the record company is doing it. And then oh, also, when I was working on the album, I wrote a book. So that oh. took a, a month or two uh, of the album time. It actually made the deadline for the album quite stressful because I, I wasn't intending to write a book, but circumstances just worked out that way. So when the album was finished and the artwork was, was sort of nearly done, so then the book came out. And I did quite a lot of work on, you know, probably a good month or so promoting the book and, you know, talking to as many people as possible about that. Yeah, right. Gary, did the mood change of, uh, of what you were doing with the album, given that, the, A, the time period, and B, the pandemic hitting in the middle of it? It did change certain things. You know, I, I wrote a song for The Gift, for example, after the pandemic hit, which is, which is about COVID specifically. Um, you know, I wouldn't have done that if, if, the, if the pandemic hadn't have been there. And, and, you know, the guest talks about COVID um, in terms of it being a weapon sent to the planet, you know, to, to begin to deal with us, you human beings. But in the main, you know, the, the way we worked on the record was very much the same as we would have done anyway. You know, we, in, in a sense, you know, you, you, you wake up in the morning, you go to the studio, you come out at night, you go to sleep and, and you know, repeat for a, for a year or two. <laughs> and... You know, in a, in a way, the world kind of just escapes you a little bit. You know, you're so locked into what you're doing, and you're so absorbed in in trying to create this thing. Um, that in in a way, you know, that quite a lot of fascinating things happen in the world, and, and you're not unaware of them, but you're not really affected by them in the same way that you would normally be. But you know, if you if you think, but yeah, you know, if you spend all day in the studio 
every day, you know, sort of seven days a week, really, when you're working hard on it. In, in a way, a pandemic doesn't really touch you because you're you're not out in the world anyway. You know, I, I was aware that the children were at home, they were doing school from at home. Um, I was aware that, you know, there was a few things that I would normally have done as a family, you know, just to, you know, take a break from the record, you know, every once yeah. in a while, and that wasn't possible. But, but that aside, really, you know, and and again, you know, the, the when the pandemic hit, there was, what, four or five months, I forget what it is, only, only four or five months of actually working on the record and, and the book, actually, when it was on. And then, then the album was finished anyway. So the majority of the record was not done under pandemic conditions. Yeah. So tell us about the book. Oh, uh, just an autobiography. Yeah, same old thing. Yeah, Lots yeah. of words talking about me. On this album, it's sonically, it's a real treat. You know, some of the sounds you've got, all, all the sounds are really great. I know in the, in the old days, the Two by Army and uh, your early work, um, a mini mood seemed to be your weapon of choice back then. What's your weapon of choice these days? There's a software synth called uh, Omnisphere, made by a company called Spectrosonic. It is so capable and, and, and so flexible that it really, to a very large degree, is the only thing you need. You know, truthfully, if you were just starting out, I would say get Omnisphere because it, it really does have pretty much everything that you could want to make an entire album. If you wanted to, it will certainly give you the, the the major building blocks of what you need to put an album together. It's an extremely clever piece of software. I actually don't have any hardware synthesizers in my studio at all anymore. In fact, my I, I did um I did an interview recently with the with the Telegraph, and they they came around to the house, and they you know as people often do, they they want to come and look at the studio. I had to warn the lady beforehand that it's really unimpressive. You know, it's not what you think. Um, because what my studio is, it's one large screen, like a 42-inch touch screen, like a giant iPad, effectively, um, right. set on a, on a lovely black wooden desk. There is a computer there, but it's hidden. You can't see it. And then there's a small keyboard next to that desk, now at 90 degrees to it, which is connected to the computer. And it's not even a synthesizer keyboard that, you know, talk to the computer, which is where all the sounds are. Right. And that's it. I mean, that's everything. Yeah. You know, oh, there's two speakers, obviously, in the corner and the amp. But that's it. That, I mean, that is that is the studio. I don't have racks and racks of keyboards stacked up against the walls. I don't no. have any guitars in there. I've got one in the corridor outside. You know, there's none of those, you know, the racks that you see and, and yeah, yeah. coming everywhere yeah, and and all that, that classic studio stuff. None of that. None of it. It's pretty sort of state of the art in a way, but it is in a very minimal kind of way. And yet, it is the most capable and powerful studio that I've ever had. And, and I've had some you know, personal studios pretty much my whole career. It is, it's a phenomenal place to work in, but it, to look at it, it's massively underwhelming. Because <laughs> oh. the wall of sound, yeah. that, and I don't like to use that term a lot, but the wall of sound you've got on this album is, is really impressive. Yeah, I'm really proud of it. I mean, a, a, a huge amount of credit for the way it sounds like goes to Wade Fenton. You know, if, if you were to hear the, the kind of the, the produced demos that I send him, you, you would truly appreciate just how clever he is in in, in turning, the, turning those crude little things I send him into these very, very sort of beautiful you know, pieces of music that he, that he, he sends back to me. He, he's, he's extremely clever. 
and he's able to interpret what I'm looking for in, in a way that we've really fine-tuned. Uh, this is the, the fifth album that we've made together. And so our working relationship has just got better and more. We're more tuned into each other with each one. We, we are definitely a team. It's not just me, you know, getting all the glory for something. You know, he really does contribute enormously. And I do not think there's a really, really strong chance anyway that I, I wouldn't be doing as well today if it wasn't for, for his input on things. Yeah. You've done a couple of, um, and it's not surprising when I, you know, I was listening to the, the new album thinking, yeah, you, you do really good on movie soundtrack. And unsurprisingly, you, you have done a few movie soundtracks. Could you tell us about doing a movie soundtrack what, what's that like it's different you know in fact, I mean I, I immigrated to to um, America from Britain in 2012 and part of my thinking at the time was to get into movie soundtracks I, I thought that would be a logical next phase of my music career really so I just thought you know looking ahead that that would be a sensible thing to do and I, I could sow the seeds now, if you like, of a successful career making film tracks, you know, soundtrack music in in the future. So I did I did one many years ago, but I did one soon after we arrived in America, and it was a good experience. I really did enjoy it, but I, I realised that it's just not for me. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, um, you doing any flying these days? Are you able to do that? No, not really. I I, I was I was an display pilot. I used to do um, low level aerobatics and all that formation stuff in in World War II aeroplanes. I did that for about 12, maybe more actually, but at least 12 years. I became an examiner for it. I was an instructor for it just to you know, make sure that people weren't going to go out and kill themselves and, you know, in these old aeroplanes. And I loved it very, very much. But pretty much everyone I knew that did, including teammates of mine, were, were killed in, in different accidents yeah. over the years. And so it, it went from being something that was really exciting and, and you felt really special to be a part of it to something that was that was it got it, it got really sad, you know, really depressing, and and then I got married, and um, my wife got to know some of these pilots, and then one particular, uh, Norman, he was killed in a in a Spitfire crash at Goodwood down near the south coast, and that really shook my wife up. That was the first person she'd been close to that had been killed, and so her support for me doing it kind of just vanished. Really, she, you know, she, I think she saw then how dangerous it was, um, and she just didn't want me to do it anymore. So that that makes a big difference, you know. If you don't have that, you you don't want to leave your wife every weekend, you know, sitting at home nervously looking at the phone. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, that's my yeah. way to live, is it? So I was yeah. very aware of that, and my own feelings were that I probably pushed my luck far enough. You know, my, my brother was a display pilot as well, and he had two really big accidents. Um, so the aeroplane had let him down. So it, it began to feel to me like it was a matter of time rather than anything. And so I thought, you know, I really, maybe now's a good time to get out of it. And we were talking about having a family. You know, we started to, to, to try to have children. You know, life, life changes, doesn't it? You know, you, yeah, you, know, you yeah. live your life and it, it just evolves into, into, into a new thing almost naturally, really. So I, like I say, I, I do really miss it. But um, I, I, I won't, I won't go back into it. I'm too old now anyway. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Hey, Gary, thanks so much for your time, mate. We really appreciate it. Uh, congratulations on the album, uh, and uh, we wish you all the best of success with it. Yeah, mate. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Thank you. Cheers.
Saints and Liars. That's uh, the new Gary Newman album called Intruder and a most interesting album. It's it's a wall of sound. It's a, an amazing production and uh, they're really good songs. Uh, so have a listen. Check it out. Well, the thing about that too is that um, who knew that he liked AFL and uh, that song <laughs> is of course about St Kilda Football Club and the dodgy umpiring called Saints and Liars. Oh, of course. And I'm glad that he, the Intruder album is just called The Intruder because Anal Intruder was a bad name, and uh, I think correct. he's done the right thing. Thank by, you very much. Anal please, Intruder Please, is, you pointed that out. Okay, I've really chucked it straight into the gutter now, haven't I? <laughs> yes, you did. Okay, uh, that's Anal Intruder by Gary Newman. <laughs> <laughs> what was that, what no. was that movie? Uh, was it Top Secret? Remember yeah. Top Secret with yeah, Val yeah. Kilmer where yeah. they had the, they the had anal intruder yes, and it was like a big ray gun <laughs> with a rubber fist on the end. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, it was. <laughs> that is one of the more bizarre. That was the two blokes who wrote um, uh, Flying High wrote yeah. uh, Top Secret and Val Top Kilmer Top Secret one of my and, – and the scene oh. where they're, they're, they're surfing and skeet shooting with shotguns <laughs> on the way. They've got shotguns and surfboards. Yeah. Oh, you got to love that. Nick Rivers was his name, Val Kilmer's character. Nick Rivers, Yeah, yes. it was a, that was a really good film. I thoroughly Your name is it. Nick. Yeah, it was just something my dad thought of when I was shaving. Yes. Nick. So <laughs> when he meets the four players, he goes, deja vu. Haven't we met? Uh, what's your name? <laughs> um, uh, so uh, well, while you're watching Chopper, do it Something. as a double feature. Chuck in yeah. Top Secret with the, with the Chopper at the same time. one three hundred five 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 seven six. That's the number for Murcots. Be a better driver. They will help you. Murcots.edu.au. We thank them for their support. They're terrific people. They will look after you. They will make sure that, uh, that you, you know, if you've got a, a, someone who's just getting a learner's permit uh, and you want to teach them how to be a better driver, a safer mm. driver, uh, someone who thinks about the other cars on the road, not just about themselves, give Murcots a buzz. one three hundred five 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 seven six. 555 Murcots.edu.au. <laughs> And if you've got like an 18 or a 19-year-old, mm-hmm. what a great gift to give them it is. and yeah. for your own peace of mind because you know that they're going to be skilled drivers because a lot of people at 18 or 19, they think they're great but there's still yep. a lot more to learn as we know. Oh, yeah. And, and look, even when you're, you know, in your in your latter years, as you are, Brian, there's a lot to learn. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyway, <laughs> I just thought I'd slip that in there and see if I got away with it. Anyway. Well, I'm going to go to Hillier's Bonk Shop after this, um, <laughs> down, down in St. Gill on the you lower You're coming to my house? I'm selling my house. I'm selling my house this week. I've had enough. Oh, good. Yeah, it's too cold. Oh, uh, yeah, fair enough. I, I yeah, can't I'm going to go up there and live with Russell. Yeah, I'm going to, let's say, in Russell's backyard with a tent and... Um, He'll love it. After visiting Hillier's Bonk Shop yes. on the lowest <laughs> lower Esplanade with the, just check out the lady. <laughs> Stop the lady it! Please That's again. enough. That's oh. enough. Uh, that is enough for uh, life of Brian. Uh, dot 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 Mannix. That is until the next time when we have. I'm telling you, we have some great guests coming up. There's some beauties on the way. Oh, uh, we got oh, fanboy moments like you I... wouldn't believe coming up in the next uh, couple of episodes. Uh, Brian, take care of yourself. Uh, be nice to everybody, and uh, and and I'm pleased you're back on stage and doing some gigs. Thank you, Kevin, and it's always great to, t- uh, to talk to you. And I'd just like to say to everybody listening, I'm really, really sorry. 